Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. We've got a great broadcast for you today of an interview I did with Coach Lou Holtz. It was at a live event of ours in San Diego. You know, Coach has taken six losing college football programs and turned them into winners within a couple of years each time. The only coach in NCAA history to take six teams to a bowl game. He was later inducted in the College Hall of Fame. He's a man of true experience, great charisma. He's become a TV analyst, and now he's on Sirius XM Radio. He's a best-selling author, a remarkable guy. I first heard Lou in a seminar in 1986, and he said something that day that changed my life. He said, there's three questions that every customer has about you and your business. Can I trust you? Are you good at what you do? And do you care about me? Well, I can tell you all these years later, I took those three questions, built my business systems and customer service around it, and that's become the backbone of my business success. I owe a lot to Coach. Over the years, we've had a great chance to become friends, golfing buddies. Uh, He's still very much a mentor to me. He's had great influence on my kids as well. And when you hear this interview, I think you're going to learn, you're going to laugh. I hope you get a chance to play it back and take some notes. We did this interview in front of 5,000 people, and you'll hear the reactions pretty strong. So listen, enjoy, and I hope you get as much out of the experience as I did. I want you up on your feet, and I want a rousing, drop them, stomp them, welcome for the coach, Lou Hulse. Let's hear it. Thank you very much. Uh, I could tell how excited you were to hear me because how rapidly you got in your seats. Oh, they're happy. They're happy to see you. And we're happy to have you. You have a workbook with you. And we got some places for you to take some notes because there really is a lot to learn here from a man who has a lot to share with us. And I'm excited, Coach, and we're real proud to have you here. Thank you. I'm flattered, and I want to tell you, you won't need a dictionary because I don't know many big words. (laughs) We're going to cover three things today, guys, and this is really why I wanted Coach to be in. He asked me, first thing, we were having lunch, what is it you want me to do? You know, what do these folks need? And it's real simple to me. And there was three things that I really wanted to have communicated here, and I think you're the master of. The first thing is, I want to talk about taking our goals that we wrote today and at other times, and how to turn goals and dreams into reality, how to pursue them, and and you're a master at that, and I want as much of your insight on that as we can get. The next thing is I want to talk about ultimately how to stay on track. I have a coaching organization. These folks here are courageous enough that have volunteered. They've opted in to be coached. And you as the master coach, I'd love you to share with them how to get the most out of that, how to be the best. And if you could lay into them a little bit, because my halftime talks don't seem to be working. And just trying to get them to make a few phone calls and do stuff like that. And then the last piece... You don't need a motivational talk at halftime when you're way ahead. Yeah. Oh, right there, baby. Did you write that one down? Did you write it down? I'm going to shut up here in about two minutes. And then the last piece is how to stay motivated. So that's what we're here to cover. So, Coach, I'm just here to listen mostly, but I'd love to know from you. You have all this great insight on goals and turning the goals into reality. Just give us your insights on that. Well, first of all, I don't have any notes. I just want to talk from the heart, and I mean this sincerely. I'm flattered and honored to be here. 
because I know the sacrifice you people made to get here. And I said a prayer in the back saying, I hope I can share with some things with these people that will make it worthwhile. Understand who I am. I'm, I'm a simple individual. When I graduated from high school, I was in the lower half of my high school class. If it was not for people like me, there could have been no upper half of the class. So, <laughs> just a. And if you look at me, you'll notice I'm five foot ten, 152 pounds, wear glasses, speak with a lisp, have a physique that appears like I've been inflicted with berry-bearing scurvy most of my life. <laughs> the only reason I can stand up here and talk to you is because I've become goal-oriented. When I went to the University of Notre Dame, and every story I tell you is absolutely true, Father Hesburgh said to me, he said, Coach, I can name you the head football coach at the University of Notre Dame. I can give you that title, because titles come from above. He said, what I cannot do is I cannot name you the leader, because leaders are going to be determined by other people. He said, a leader is somebody that has a vision and has a plan. So anytime you want to be a leader, anytime you want to accomplish something, it starts with having dreams. In 1966, I went to South Carolina under a guy by the name of Marvin Bass. My wife was eight months pregnant with our third child. We spent every cent we had in the bank for a down payment on a home. I'm there one month. I get up on a Monday morning. I pick up the paper and the headline said, Marvin Bass resigns. I said to my wife, I wonder if he's related to my coach. And an hour later, I'm unemployed. They hired Paul Dietz, so he didn't retain me. I didn't know anybody in South Carolina. So after my wife gave birth to Kevin, I was a stay-at-home dad. Well, my wife went to work as an x-ray technician for a couple months till we got relocated. I felt very depressed. I never had any goals in life. When I was in high school, all I wanted was a car, a girl, a $5 in my pocket, and a job in the mill. I never had any of them. I wondered who could want more out of life than that. So as I was just going along and my wife feeling bad for me, bought me this book, The Magic of Thinking Big, where he talked about goals. And I did what he asked me to do. One day the children were taking a nap. And I made five columns, things I want to do as a husband and a father. Column two was things I want to do religiously. God's important in my life, but I don't preach it or lecture it. I hope the way I live my life reflects the faith I have in God. Column number three was things I wanted to accomplish financially. Column number four was things I want to do professionally. Column number five was things I want to do for excitement. I'll never forget, I'm writing down, I want to jump out of an airplane. I wanted to land on an aircraft carrier. I wanted to go on a submarine. I wanted to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I wanted to learn how to do magic. I wanted to make a hole-in-one. I wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Snake River. I wanted to go to the White House for dinner. I wanted to see the Pope. I wanted to go to Pompalona and run with the bulls with a slower person. <laughs> These true story. My wife come home. I said, honey, here's 107 of these suckers and we're going to do them all. And I'll never forget, my wife looked at him and said, gee, that's great. She said, but why don't you get a job? So we've done 102. I've done everything I mentioned, everything I mentioned except run with the bulls. I know what it's like to come out of an airplane 10,000 feet, free fall 5,000 feet and pull the chute, fall the other 5,000 feet in seven and a half minutes. Ain't ever going to do it again. But don't go through life and be a spectator. Be a participant. You know, ladies and gentlemen, goals make things happen. About six years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer, stage four. The doctor said she had 10% chance to live. And I want to pause here and say to you sincerely, if you want some great advice, listen to your spouse. 
Nobody knows you any better, loves you any more, wants to see you succeed anymore, will be any more honest with you. My wife's not only somebody I love dearly, she's my best friend. And I respect her opinion, I solicit her opinion every time I have a difficult decision to make. But in any event, she went to the doctor and she called me from the doctor's office crying. She said, the doctor just told me I had cancer and he did not think it was curable. Ladies and gentlemen, before my wife got home, I had an appointment the next day at the Mayo Clinic. I called and bought the acre lot right next to us, called the builder and said, we're going to put an addition on this large home. He said, why are you going to put an addition on? There's just you and your wife. I said, I want my wife to have something to look forward to. When my wife come home, I told her what I did, and I said, I want you to design that addition any way you want. Ladies and gentlemen, after we got that built, then she decided she wanted to go to Jerusalem. I made arrangements to go to Jerusalem, and her weight had gone from 129 to 89. And each time I said to her, if you get up to 114 pounds, I'm going to take you to Jerusalem. And she worked at it. Always try to give her something to look forward to. Matter of fact, I had to go back to Notre Dame to speak to the student body. And after I got done the first question, this is the way Notre Dame students are. The first question was, how's Mrs. Holtz doing? I said, she's doing pretty good. As a matter of fact, I promised her. If she gets up to 114 pounds, I'm going to take her to the Holy Land. And the students got so excited and said, oh, coach, that's so great. You're going to bring her back to Notre Dame. I said, no, we're going to Jerusalem, but, and I'm happy to report this, at approximately 1.30 in the green room, I called my wife, she just came back from the doctor today, and got another favorable report. Ladies and gentlemen, it's just about dreams, it's about goals, and it's believing. I just believe in dreams, and I know you're here, and you get excited, and you say, this is what I want to do. Decide what you want to do and remember the word win. And win stands for what's important now. Whatever you decide you want to do, if you say what's important now, it'll evaluate the past, focus on the future, but tell you what you have to do in the present. See, ladies and gentlemen, we're in this beautiful environment. We get all excited and we write down these dreams. But what happens to you when you're tired and you're discouraged and things go rather poorly? Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to stay focused on that dream. And that's why it's important to write down and believe it can be done. As I tell our athletes, we want to win the championship. Ask yourself 25 times a day, what's important now? You get up in the morning, want to be a champion. What's important now? Get out of bed. What's important now? Eat breakfast, need your strength. What's important now? Go to class, sit in the front row. When you're in the weight room, what's important now? To get stronger, not because somebody's going to applaud you or give you an award. You know, that's what you have to do. And you're out Saturday night and there's booze and drugs and sex and heroin. What's important now? If you want to be a championship, what's important now? Avoid that situation. But see, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to keep that dream in front of you. I just had the opportunity to visit with Mr. Strader, who happens to be a University of Michigan alum. Now, if you're a Michigan alum, interpretation means you couldn't get into Notre Dame, you know. (laughs) But back in 1989, every story I tell you is true. We were to open up with the University of Michigan. They had a great football team, and when we started practice, we talked about having to beat Michigan in Ann Arbor. 
And boy, for the first couple of days, ladies and gentlemen, we had enthusiasm, we had excitement. Then you know what happened, Brian? Then all of a sudden they got tired and they got discouraged and they got worn out. And instead of trying to beat Michigan, they just went through the motions. They were sore and they were tired. And I walked out one day and just because you do something doesn't mean you're going to get better. You write your name a hundred times a day and the signature will be just difficult to read as it was at the beginning, unless every time you write it, you want it to get better. And so I walked out one day and I called the team up and I said, hey man, I called Bo today. Bo Schembeck was coach at Michigan. I didn't call Bo, but I told him that. <laughs> I said, man, I called Bo today and I said, Bo, your player's tired. He said, yeah. I said, Bo, we're tired too. I said, I'll tell you what, Bo, you give Michigan players a day off, I'm going to give Notre Dame players a day off. They started high-fiving one another and jumping and cheering. And I looked at him. I said, Bo said, no. <laughs> Bo doesn't care how tired you are. He's going to practice two hours. I, I don't want to practice here, but if we're going to beat Michigan, we have to practice two and a half. And we had a good practice because they remembered what they were trying to do. And it worked so well that day. I walked out the next day and said, hey, man, I called Bo today. And they looked at me real funny. They said, what Bo say? I said, Bo, your players beat up and sore. He said, yeah. I said, we are too, Bo. I said, I'll tell you what, Bo, you practice Michigan in shorts, and I'll practice Notre Dame in shorts. And I said, man, you won't believe this, but Bo said no. Bo said he doesn't care how sore you are. He's going to scrimmage. I don't want to scrimmage. I'll feel your pain, but if we're going to beat Michigan, we have to scrimmage. And don't get mad at me, but you remember this when you see Bo on September 12th. That guy's going, not me. <laughs> True story. I, I, I did this four days. Every day I started out by saying, I called Bo today. And I walked out the fifth day, and before I could say a word, one of our players said, hey, coach, I called Bo today. <laughs> I said, what Bo say? He said, Bo said his players eat steak and lobster, you know. <laughs> and that was a game where Rocket Ishmael ran back two kickoffs, and we were able to beat the University of Michigan. But, ladies and gentlemen, absolutely everything starts with dreams. And don't make the mistake I made. And if you listen to nothing else I say, please listen to this. When I left the University of Notre Dame, I never thought I'd coach again. Because where do you go from Notre Dame, according to my mother, except you go directly to him and you sit by the Pope. You, you don't coach anymore. <laughs> and I left the University of Notre Dame because I thought I was tired of coaching. And I wasn't tired of coaching, ladies and gentlemen. I was tired of maintaining. There's a rule of life that said you're either growing or you're dying. A tree's either growing or it's dying. So's grass. So's a marriage. So's an organization. So's a business. So's a team. And you took Notre Dame from the bottom. And we went to nine straight January one bowls of sugar, the cotton, the orange, or the fiesta. Nobody's done it before and nobody's done it since. We took them to the very top. And you reach a point where you say, this is pretty good. This is pretty comfortable. Let's keep it here. Let's not risk anything. And ladies and gentlemen, when you try to maintain, you aren't growing, you're dying. When you try to maintain something on top, you never have a reason to celebrate. You never have a unique idea. And everything sort of becomes negative. And when I left the University of Notre Dame, I thought I was tired of coaching, but it wasn't. I was tired of maintaining an all-successful people 
have got to fight that. And even when I went to do television where you talk to you, think of something to say, and I had that <laughs> same empty feeling. And why did I go back to coaching? Because of the challenge. I inherited the longest losing streak in the country. My first year, I contributed to that streak. <laughs> but see, ladies and gentlemen, you have to have a purpose. You have to have a reason. There are four things in life that are important. Number one, you have to have something to do. Number two, you have to have someone to love. Something to do and someone to love. Point number three is you have to have something to hope for. And point number four, you have to have something to believe in. Now, if you have something to do, someone to love, something to hope for, and something to believe in, what's more important in life? The people that don't have anything to hope for. Oh, they might wish for something, but there's a difference between wishing and hoping. Wishing you sit there and hope and wish that somebody would do something for you. Hope is where you're going to get it done yourself. You know, Brian, I know we only have an hour or whatever, but I could talk longer about the importance of dreams, getting people to become motivated, getting people to want to do something. But to me, everything starts with a dream. And I, yes, we have accomplished 102 out of those 108 things. But I have other dreams and goals, and even at my age now, I don't even buy green bananas, I'm so old. <laughs> but I can tell you this, there's still a lot of things that I want to do with my life. Oh, that's good stuff. Good stuff, eh? Are we hanging in? No doubt. It's interesting, actually, as an aside, this is something I think that would be interesting for these folks to kind of grasp. We were just having a chat, and you were talking about moving to Orlando. You just, we were just talking, and you were going to go buy a house. And he said, there were seven things I wanted, and seven he listed things. off the seven things. And I think this is a piece of the puzzle of what you do naturally. You take this goal, and then you get your list together, and then off to the races. And I thought that was just awesome. You have to have a vision. You have to have a plan. Right. Father Hesburgh. Vision and a plan. This is where I want to go. You've got to have a plan of how you're going to get there. If, if I'm going to go from Orlando to, uh, say, New York, I'm going to get out a map and say, this is what will take me there. You don't just drive around. Mm -hmm. To try to get somewhere you don't know where you want to go is just difficult to come back from somewhere you've never been. And I sat down and I decided there's seven things that I wanted in a home. It's 1979. I wanted a place with good airline connections. I wanted a place where there was warm weather year-round. I wanted a place where they had good golf for me. I wanted a place where there was good tennis for my wife, water for the children. I wanted a place where there was a lot to do. You had Disney, you had Universal Studios, etc. And the only thing I wanted Orlando didn't have was a place I could afford. <laughs> And I said to my wife, six out of seven ain't bad, and that's how we ended up there. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. One, two, three, four, five. And now the plan, something that becomes obtuse, it's a dream. So a dream can, becomes reality because it gets boiled down into these little bits. Life's hard by the yard, cinched by the inch. I got a bunch of people out here that we have a coaching staff that works with these folks on the phone. We bring them to an event. They come maybe three, four times a year. They're working on a process. They're working on themselves. They have goals. They've made some progress, sometimes huge, sometimes stuck, sometimes ready to try, sometimes two steps up, one step back. 
I want you to visualize, if you can, that just for a second, we're partners. And these are now, you're coaching them. And these are your players. What would you tell your players in regards to how to achieve, how to participate in the coaching process, and how to ultimately maximize and fulfill their potential? Do we have two weeks? Uh, you have I, all the time you okay, want, actually. I, 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 mean. I, I feel very strongly on this. First of all, I want to say this to you. You're very successful, but you're also very significant. There's a big difference. The greatest thing about being responsible for other people, whether you're a parent, whether you're a coach, or whether you're a manager. See, people are successful when they die, that ends. But when you're significant is when you help other people be successful. And that lasts many a lifetime. And I think the greatest reward there can possibly be in life is to help other people be successful. Mm. I, I believe that sincerely. Just the contribution you make to other people. There's some things I believe in very, very strongly. First of all, they have to know what they can expect from me and what I can expect from them. And our obligation as a leader is to set standards. Your obligation as a coach is to take people to a level they can't get to on their own for two reasons. One, they don't believe in their talents or their capabilities. And the second thing is they don't believe they can do it and they aren't willing to pay the price. Mm. And there are too many people in a leadership role, coaches, parents, and managers, that are insecure. And consequently, by being insecure, they want to be popular. They want to keep people happy. Our obligation is to make them better. Now, you have to be very secure in your belief about yourself. And I did not used to be that way. There's only two types of people, ladies and gentlemen, those that lift up and those that pull down. We have teachers that lift people up, and we have teachers pull each other down. And the difference is how you think about yourself. I've taken over six college situations. I've never inherited a winner. Never failed to go to a bowl game by the second year at the latest. Two things I've done that's never been duplicated in the history of football. is take six different teams to a bowl, take four teams to a top 20 finish. And not because of me, but I have a philosophy. I have a plan. And that is, every time I've gone into a losing situation, but a group of people try to pull other people down. The important thing is, how do we get them to be self-confident enough to lift each other up? I used to be insanely jealous of my wife. And not one time in 44 years of marriage has my wife ever given me reason to be jealous of her. The problem wasn't with her, the problem was with me. We'd go to a cocktail party, she'd be talking to another man, he's always better looking, better built, more intelligent. And I'd think, gee, why would she rather be with him than with me? Then I would unfairly criticize my wife, ladies and gentlemen, trying to pull her self-confidence down till she'd reach a level where she would think she was lucky to have me as a husband. It's a prime example of doing a disservice, and you find this in all walks of life. You have to feel confident in yourself than lifting people up. Now, how did we change that where the players become confident? Just with three simple rules. I only have three rules. Rule number one is do right. Do what's right and avoid what's wrong. 
I think it's right to be honest. I think it's right to be on time. I think it's wrong to practice sexism, racism, spousal abuse. I think it's wrong to feel guilty. There's not an individual in this room with self-including, including you had done dumb things, wish we hadn't done them. But you can't go through life with an albatross around your neck saying, I made a mistake, forget it. Happiness is nothing more than having a poor memory. <laughs> you can't remember what happened yesterday, you feel good today. I think it's also wrong to be bitter. We've all had injustices done. You can't go through life being bitter because when you're bitter, you're negative. How many times have we seen the person growing old being bitter about something happened eight years ago? Mm. And when they pass away, their spouse has to hire pallbearers because they don't have six friends. Just do the right thing. The second rule I have is do everything to the best of your ability. I'm not going to accept anything less than the best you're capable of doing. People ask me, what's the difference between athletes today and 30 years ago? Same difference I see in society today, Brian. Today, everybody wants to talk about their rights and their privileges. 30 years ago, people talked about their obligations and responsibilities. When you join a team, I believe mm -hmm. that. You join a business, you bring a child to this world, you have obligations, you have responsibilities. Harry Truman said, the freedom swing your fist ends where the other guy's nose begins. <laughs> the freedom do what you want to do ends where your obligation to other people begin. Mm. And the third rule we have is show people you care. Always show people you care. Those three rules seem so simple. Why are they effective? Because, ladies and gentlemen, everybody you meet, and I don't care what continent you're on, I don't care whether you're talking about your children, your spouse, your employees, your associates, players, or coaches. Everybody asks three questions. First question everybody asks, can I trust you? Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't have trust, you can't have a relationship. My wife and I have been married together 88 years, 44 apiece, because she can trust me and I can trust her. Without trust, there's no relationship. I have to have players I can trust. Who are the ones you can trust? The ones that do right. If both sides does what's right, you got trust. The second question everybody asks, are you committed to excellence? Oh, you can have all the slogans you want. First will be best, then we'll be first. You send a message whether you're committed to excellence by the standards you have. And see, ladies and gentlemen, a commitment to excellence also, to me, means teamwork. We have to work together. South Carolina. My first year, I went in there, we were 0 and 11. And then in February, after that 0 and 11 season, I told the team to come out to the stadium. It was about 10.30 at night. Our stadium seats 80,000. It was dark, but the lights were on. It was an impressive stadium. The players came out. They didn't know what I wanted. And I had a huge fire hose out there. And I'd gotten this idea from Pete Carroll, who I'd hired at Arkansas. I said, give me 15 of your strongest offensive players, 15 of defense. And the first thing you know, they started having a tug of war, and the offense started to win. Then pretty soon I noticed the defense was winning. Why? They didn't have 15, they had 2025, and their motto was, we got to win. And pretty soon the whole team, all the defense here, all the offense are pulling, yeah, and the offense won. They're going, yeah, yeah, we won. I said, we can't win when we pull against each other. The only chance we have is if we pull together. We've been pulled against each other. See, ladies and gentlemen, we need each other. Let's understand we need each other. There's all kind of Hall of Fames. 
I've never seen a monument built to a team, but what a team does, it enables you to accomplish something that no individual, regardless how multi-talented he may be, can do by himself. Let's also understand that the role we play is important because of the overall goal of the group. Let's also understand that as a challenge escalates, the need for teamwork elevates. I didn't need teamwork to go on 11, but you need teamwork to win the SEC. I don't know who you we played, but we played Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia. People said, how do you sleep with that schedule? I said, like a baby. Woke up every two hours and cried. I thought, oh, <laughs> good Lord knows. But, so, and the third question everybody asked, do you care about me? Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, you're smarter than I am. There's a hundred different ways to genuinely show people you care. You know, when I was at Notre Dame in 1987, I was struggling. And I went to work for International Special Olympics. That's a hugger. I had lane three, no matter who finished the race, first, last, or in between. My only job was to run up and hug them. And people that had every reason to be bitter, and all they wanted to do was love and be loved. When I see people with talent and ability and opportunities bitching and moaning about some little thing, it absolutely drives me insane. Ladies and gentlemen, always show people you care. You know, I used to carry little lifesavers around in my pocket of practice. If somebody did something, I'd say, well, you saved us there. You're a lifesaver. And i tell you how important little things are. A few months ago, my wife had to go to the Mayo Clinic for a checkup. And her test started at 7 o'clock in the morning, and so I couldn't go with her. I'd go up and meet with her at the doctor at 3 that afternoon. And I went back to bed about 1 o'clock. It was late at night. And there on my pillow was a little note, just a simple little note. didn't take her 10 seconds to write it. But I said, I'm sorry we can't be here tonight, but we'll spend many nights together, and thank you for being my husband and making me feel special. And I, I want to tell you, that little thing, just said, you don't have to go buy fancy things. You don't have to do great things. But always say, hey, how can I show people we care? There are too many people in this world to pass judgment about somebody, the way they look or the music they like. Or, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we want to be a family. Family doesn't mean you have the same last name. doesn't mean you have the same address. What it does mean, though, is you care about one another. You share each other's problems. You share the same core values. And it's just genuinely caring about people. But we pass judgment on somebody. We had a quarterback at South Carolina the players didn't like because they thought he was aloof. They thought he's a drift. And so I had a team meeting, and I had the quarterback get up and talk about his background. He said, he got up in front of the whole team, and they're sitting back here, and he said, I love my dad. My dad taught me how to hunt and fish and throw a football. He taught me how to be a man. He said, I was 12 years of age. I was home with my dad. He went in the other room, took a gun out, and committed suicide. He said, I've never wanted to be close again because I know the hurt I've had. All of a sudden, the players understood. They understood why he was that way. They didn't understand why I was overly tolerant with one young man who they understood his life. At age 11, his mother died of cancer. He had an older brother who was a great basketball player. The same year, at 17 years of age, was killed in an automobile accident. He went to live with his uncle, and that same year, his uncle was killed in a bar fight. 
Now you understand why people are. Get to know people. Get to pass judgment about people. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we talk about doing the right thing. After we were on the that first year, I had a team meeting. I'll never forget it was June 18th because we had a problem on the team. And I wanted to know why the team didn't trust me enough to tell me the problem was going on. I don't care whether you like me. I've never given you reason to trust me. Ask why if I go and tell you something, I want to be honest with you. And nobody said anything. Finally, a player got up and he said, Coach, I trust you. He said, I think this team trusts you. And he looked around the room, but he said, there are a lot of people in this room I don't trust. A lot of you lie and cheat and steal. And another player got up and said, I agree. The problem on that football team and why we're losing, they didn't trust each other. Why? Because they do do the right thing. I gave him a sheet of paper and I said, put three columns. The things you don't like about yourself, you can't change. And put a big X through it. Column number two, write down things you don't like about yourself, you will change. Column number three. Write down anything you did you regret. I don't care what it is because it's going to be confidential. I gave them to the next day at 2 o'clock to come back with the paper. They came back, and I met with them in the team meeting room. I said, we're going out to the practice field. Now, South Carolina, Brian, had a tradition. Wherever they won on the road, they put a little tombstone of the date, the opponent, and the score. <laughs> now, it wasn't a very big graveyard. or just a couple of them there. <laughs> and we went out. I had a tombstone this big, completely blank. And we dug a hole, we put every one of those pieces of paper in, and we burned it. We covered up with dirt, we put the tombstone there. If you go to South Carolina, I'm sure the tombstone's still there, completely blank. And that's when we buried the past, that's when we made a commitment that we were going to do the right thing. Six months later, we're nationally ranked, we beat Ohio State in a bowl game. But it just goes back. Do the right thing so people can trust you. Do everything to the best of your ability so people know you're committed to excellence. And always show people you care so when they ask the question, do you care about me? So those are the rules I have. But let me tell you what I look for an athlete. First of all, let's start about your attitude. I think attitude is probably the most important choice you make. You have a lot of powers. The power to love and think, create, and imagine. The greatest power you have is the power to choose. And the attitude you choose is most important. What's your attitude going to be when you have adversity? Let me tell you what happened my first year in South Carolina. My wife had her second major cancer surgery. My son went into a coma the week before we played Georgia. My mother died the Friday we played Florida, man's most prized possession. I was on a school airplane for three days recruiting. I was going to be on it two more days. We landed at Lady Island Airport, and the pilot said, Coach, will you go visit the athlete? We're going to fly 11 miles to Hilton Head to get gas. During that 11-mile flight, the plane crashed. One school pilot was killed instantly. Another one was seriously injured and later died. We lost every single football game we played that year. We went on 11. And I had a kicker that said, I can't kick when you're watching. <laughs> I explained I was going to be at the games now. <laughs> we went on 11, but records could be deceiving, Brian. We really weren't as good as our record would lead you to believe. And man, everybody's putting you down. Guy comes up at the airport and says, anybody tell you you look like Lou Holtz? 
I said, yeah, it happens all the time. He said, really makes you mad, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, what's your attitude then? You're going to lay down and feel sorry or you're going to get up. Yeah. Twelve months later, we're in a bowl game. And then I want an attitude of a person who wants to accept the challenge. I'm in South Carolina. Three days, I get a phone call from a young man said, my name's Ryan Brewer. I want to play for you. I said, tell me about yourself, Ryan. He said, I'm a running back. I'm five foot ten, 185 pounds. I'm from Troy, Ohio. I'm an A student. I made all state and Ohio first team. Well, I knew it was going to be hard to recruit in South Carolina because we got a late start. I said, that's great. He said, I want you to recruit me. I said, well, we are, Ryan. And he said, does that mean a scholarship? I said, Ryan, if you're an A student, if you made all state in Ohio, you have a scholarship. He said, coach, what I told you is absolutely true. And I accept the scholarship. I said, that's great, Ryan. Who else offered you a scholarship? He said, nobody, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> I hung up the phone. I called one of these recruiting experts. I said, can Ryan Brewer play? He said, Coach, he couldn't play a dead ending in a Western movie. <laughs> Ryan Brewer did not have a scholarship offer. Ohio State thought he was too slow, Michigan too small. The list goes on and on. He comes to South Carolina. Now, first thing we do when a young man arrives on campus, we time him in the 40-yard dash. Now, when Rocket Ishmael came to Notre Dame, I mean, he was fast. He could turn out the light and get bed before it got dark. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> Rocket Ishmael is the only player I've ever coached could run a punt back 80 yards for a touchdown be called for roughing the punter on the same play. I mean, he's unbelievable. <laughs> now, Ryan Brewer has a different story. I watched that sucker run the 40-yard dash. I was willing to bet anybody in this world. If Ryan Brewer got in a race with a pregnant mother, he would finish third. <laughs> he was small. He couldn't run. But all he wanted was an opportunity. He said, Coach, just give me a chance. I know I can play major college football. Nobody else believes I can. Just give me a chance. That young man that nobody wanted. His sophomore year, we played Ohio State on January 1. A young man from the state of Ohio rushed for over 100 yards. Cut passes for over 100 yards, scored three touchdowns, was the most valuable player in the game as we won 24 to 7. And ladies and gentlemen, it just goes back. Tell me about his attitude. What's your attitude as a leader? What's their attitude? Also, do they have a passion to win? I love to be around successful people. Brian, I certainly enjoyed meeting your lovely wife. I certainly enjoyed meeting your brothers, etc. But you know what I love about successful people? I know, number one, they've made sacrifice. There's no way in this world you can succeed without sacrifice. You have to understand, if you're going to achieve something, you have to sacrifice. Losers call it punishment. You have to be willing to sacrifice. The other thing I love about winners, they have a passion to win means they get rid of all the excuses why you can't. As long as you have an excuse, then you're going to look for reasons why you can't succeed rather than look for solutions. See, ladies and gentlemen, in being a leader, your attitude and setting standards is so critical. I could talk for so many things about what I want in an athlete, but to me, those three rules. Now, did everybody 
come to South Carolina, come to Notre Dame, come to Arkansas, that you could trust we're committed and committed excellence? No. But when they violated that rule, I would call them in. And I'd say, Jim, I'm often wrong. But I don't want to go through life being wrong, but I don't believe you're doing the best you can in Spanish. Here's the reasons why. You got an A in Spanish 1, you're getting a D in Spanish 2, you missed study hall three times, you missed tutor twice. I know that's not the best you can do, and I want to know why. I didn't attack them personally. We put it on the table. They understood that they were going to do the right thing, do the best they can, and show people you care. You bring it to their attention. You aren't attacking them personally. They aren't defensive. And you aren't raising your voice. You aren't screaming. You aren't hollering. You're approaching the problem. And I expect you to show improvement. See, when you have a problem, you only have three alternatives. You can change a problem. Most of the athletes, we could change, but they understood what I expected, what they could expect. If you can't change a problem, you've got to learn to live with it. My wife squeezes a toothpaste in the middle. Drives me crazy. But you know what? I bought he and she's toothpaste. She still squeezed mine in the middle. I couldn't change a problem. Okay, what I learned to do is learn to live with it. Every time I see that toothpaste squeeze in the middle, I think what a beautiful person she is. Her morals, her values, her assets. And I look at it, and it makes me remember how wonderful a person she is. So I've learned to live with it. Because see, if I couldn't do that, I'd get frustrated every time I see it. But if you can't change it, you can't learn to live with it, you must divorce yourself from the problem. Did Beverly talk to you? No. We have toothpaste gate in our home, and this is the very issue. It's a very critical time well, right now. you've got to learn to live with it or divorce yourself from the problem, and she ain't leaving. I want you to know that. But, but I, I simplify that. But see, ladies and gentlemen, I believe in having standards, believing in people, showing them how they can accomplish things. That's your role as a leader. Too many people want to lower the standard. Mm. Now, I want you to do them a favor for me. I want you to take two people. Take somebody you love, admire, and respect. And take somebody you've got a problem with. could be anybody in this world. Put these three questions on both people, simple yes or no. Can you trust them? Yes or no. Are they committed to excellence? Yes or no. Do they care about you and the organization? Yes or no. I guarantee the person you admire and respect, you just said yes to all three questions. The person you got a problem with, you pinpoint a problem. Either you can't trust them, they aren't committed, or they don't care. Now, if we have identified the problem, we can solve it. The only time you have a problem is if two people are there for a different reason. You might have a disagreement, but as long as you have the same objective, you'll never have a problem. But once we identify what the problem is, we now have a chance to solve it. And that's why I always said trust, commitment, and care. I could go on and on, but I know time's running down. I'm sure you have a lot of questions you want to ask me. You're doing beautiful, man. Are you guys enjoying this? Great stuff. Beautiful. I guess the piece to this puzzle is you're 69 years of age. You have more energy than almost any human being I've ever met. How do you stay motivated? How can we stay motivated? How do you stay motivated? Well, you imagine I'm 69 years old. I love what Winston Churchill said. 84 years of age, he's in the House of Commons. And a guy came up to him, a newspaper reporter, and said, Happy 84th birthday. He said, Mr. Churchill, do you think I get a chance to wish you a happy 100th? 
Winston Churchill looked at him and said, yeah, I think so. You look pretty healthy to me. Yeah. <laughs> like the guy said, when I die, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather did. I don't want to die like those screaming, yelling passengers in his car. <laughs> You know, Brian, I, I just believe you have to feel that you have a purpose. Now, I want to ask everybody in this audience a serious question, including you, Brian. And that's this. If you didn't go home, who would miss you and why? If you didn't go to work, who would miss you and why? If your company went out of business, who would miss you and why? If nobody would miss you, then you really need to examine what you're doing. See, ladies and gentlemen, if Delta Airlines or America West Airlines went out of business, nobody would miss them because they're all the same. You could go fly United and the same thing would happen. They'll be late. They'll lose your luggage. And I went up to the lady. I said, I want this suitcase to go to New York. I went to Los Angeles and this one to Chicago. She said, we can't do that. I said, you did it the last time I flew. <laughs> but you wouldn't miss them because they're all the same. Now, if Disneyland went out of business, people would miss them because it's unique. It's special. There's only one like it. So all I try to do is create my life. If I didn't go home, my wife would miss me. She'd miss me because I encourage her, I support her, I believe in her so strongly. If I didn't go home, I would like to think my children would miss me because we have four children and they're all girls but two. And I'm real proud of that fact. But. I just want to support my children and believe in them. And if I didn't show up at the office, I would like to think that our players would miss me. Whatever you do, make a difference. Make a difference while you're there. And if you're trying to make a difference, the only way you can do it is by trying to do the little things the right way. By looking and saying, how can I be valuable? to that person, to that organization. I'm going to work for ESPN. I'll be in the studio 15 Saturdays. I'll be on TV on ESPN2 for 15 Tuesdays. And I've been trying to do my research and my homework because that's what I am going to do. So if I'm going to do something, I want to do it the best of my ability. Now, understand this with my looks and things like that. I don't have the face for television. I have the ideal face for radio. When I come out here, I still get mad at the L.A. Times. 1988, we won the national championship, and we're 10-0 number one and beat Southern Cal. They're 10-0 number two. We stayed over for Notre Dame prayer breakfast. Then we went to Disneyland. We go in there, and all the photographers want to take a picture of our captains with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. They then asked me to pose for a picture, and they removed Donald and Mickey, and they put Pluto and Goofy. True story. I didn't say anything. Pulled down my Notre Dame hat, and the picture that ran the L.A. Times was me. And they said, here's Lou Holtz, head football coach, and Notre Dame's fighting Irish at Disneyland with Pluto and Goofy. Now, that didn't bother me. 
What bothered me was the next sentence because it was in bold capital letters. It said, Lou Holtz is a one in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) These true stories, I'm telling you. So the only way I make a difference is to really be focused and try to do the best job that's ever been done there. And the only way that can be done, do your research, be yourself, things along that line. I, I think wanting to be important. But it's not just by saying I'm important or trying to act important. It's really and truly trying to make a difference in people's lives. And I don't think of anything more worthwhile than being significant. On my tombstone when I die, and I've told this to my wife, I wanted to say, I told you I was sick. She never believes I'm sick. So, <laughs> oh, are we having any fun yet? Um, we could go all day. We've had a great time. Here's what I'd want to know as we finish here. If you were never to see these folks again, I've told you about these folks. Oh, and I'll and, tell you what. You told me how great they were, how enthusiastic, how successful, and how motivated they were. But I want to tell you, you underrated them. They're far better than you told me. All right. That's great stuff. They're exceptional. They are. They are exceptional. So I have an exceptional group of people here who are, who are on fire, and they're on fire about life. They want to grow. The culture's got this magnetic pull telling them, hey, you're goofy, you're going to seminars, you're doing this, you're doing that, and so on and so forth. If you were never to see these folks again, what would be just the very best thing you'd wish for them and encourage them as they go to pursue their purpose and their passion in their life? What would be your best advice that you would give them so that they could live a life that's full and see out their purpose so that what's written on their tombstone is what they want to have see happen? Well, I'm writing an autobiography now, and you should write it when you're younger so you could still remember then. Uh, <laughs> I do believe this. I think that there, we go through six phases of life. I don't know what phase you happen to be in, but phase number one is infancy, where you have to rely on everybody else for everything. The second phase is childhood, where all of a sudden you get out and you meet some other people. You find out you aren't the fastest, you aren't the strongest, you aren't the quickest. You aren't the prettiest, not everybody likes you. And then the next phase you move into is young adulthood. You want all the privileges. You want to drive, you want to drink, you want to make love. But you don't want any responsibilities that go along with it. In stage four, you move into adulthood. All of a sudden now you decide what you want to do and who you want to live with and what you want your profession to be. But then when you go into that, you find out how competitive this world is, how difficult it is to be successful. Then you move into middle age where we ought to be able to sit back and enjoy middle age because our children are grown and we seem to be set. And then we start thinking about all the dreams we had that we didn't realize and how we undersold ourselves. And then we start relying on a lot of age. We take role age. We wear adhering age. We put band-aids, etc. Then we move into senior citizen. And that should be a great time, but you know what happens in senior citizen? We find out the world's going to get along without us. 
You left Notre Dame and they're still going to be successful eventually. And you left South Carolina, they're going to be great. And Notre Dame will be. And Notre, South Carolina's going to Steve Spurrier going to do a marvelous job there. You find out the world can get along without you. And then you move into old age where the only thing you worry about is your health. And the point I make, ladies and gentlemen, regardless of what stage you find yourself in, it's all up to you and it's mental. But you're always going to find there's going to be challenges, there's going to be problems, and life is never going to be completely made. But what age you're in depends upon your mental attitude and whether you're willing to accept challenges. But believe in yourself. Believe in your dreams. Believe in your goals. Because if you don't believe in yourself, there's so many people in this world that feel that I don't deserve to have success. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever happened in the past, bury it. The good Lord put eyes in front of your head rather than back so you can see where you're going rather than where you've been. Mm. Just keep looking, believing, and have a plan. And remember the word win, what's important now. And if you follow those three rules for yourself and insist upon the people you work with, you don't have any worry whatsoever. As I told my wife, three days after I die, and people find out I'm not going to be resurrected from the dead. <laughs> They're going to forget me. Whether they forgive me three days after I die or ten years before I die is irrelevant. Do the right thing, enjoy life, and God bless you. There we go. Well, you've enriched our life today, Coach. I have enjoyed this time. You are a treasure. We love you. Ladies and gentlemen, salute hope. Wow. That was great stuff, wasn't it? I hope you enjoyed that interview. As you could tell, the live audience was blown away. And I hope you were too, by the wisdom and wit of one of the greatest coaches and motivators of all time. I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends. Tell them to subscribe for free on iTunes to The Brian Buffini Show. You know, Lou was the coach of the Fighting Irish. That's what he's always been known for. Well, I'm going to leave you with the blessings of Ireland right now. May the roads rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hands.